Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation. We've started on our anxiety and depression massive review of peer-reviewed papers, of lectures, of books, of interviews, etc., The whole goal here is to create a low-cost or no-cost resource for people suffering from anxiety and depression and PTSD. So to find out more, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest is Gabe Howard. Uh, He's an award-winning podcast host, an author, and a sought-after speaker. I wish I was an award-winning podcast host, but oh well. In 2003, he was diagnosed with bipolar and anxiety disorders after being committed to a psychiatric hospital. But he hosts the weekly Inside Mental Health podcast for Healthline Media, and he's an author of a funny book, Mental Illness is an Asshole. I love the title and other observations. He's been in numerous publications, including Bipolar Magazine, WebMD, Healthline.com, and the Stanford Online Medical Journal. He's been a guest on many podcasts and now one more as of today. So Gabe, thank you for coming. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, if you would, you know, it seems like you're offering some details about your personal life. I hope it's okay, but would you tell me a little bit about your journey with mental health? What's going on with you? Yeah, so I live with bipolar and anxiety disorders, and I found out about this after I was committed to a psychiatric hospital. Before then, I I thought that everything that was happening to me was just quote-unquote normal. I was born this way, right? So I just thought this was part of the natural human condition, and I don't think I really need to tell anybody that we don't really do a good job of discussing emotions and mental health and learning about mental illness it's just not really an open dialogue. And it certainly wasn't in in my family or in in the people that I hung out with. So I thought about suicide as far back as I can remember. I mean, I never remember not weighing the pros and cons of life and death. And once again, I just, I just thought it was normal. And, and, and everything that was going on with me that were symptoms of a larger 
illness, disorder, problem, I just dismissed as, uh, I don't know, life. Uh, and of course, what happens if you have an illness and you leave it unchecked, it just gets worse. It got worse and worse and worse. And I'm, I'm so fortunate that I ended up in a hospital because I, I, I could have ended up in just a, a much worse place. And, and obviously, I, I, I'm, you know, I could have ended up dead, right? I mean, but I also could have gotten arrested. I could have ended up in jail or prison, or I, I could have done something. I did a lot of things that I regret, but I, I could have done you know, way, way worse considering I, I just, it was a mess, Richard. It was a mess. Well, I mean, it may be obvious or stupid, but what, what happened to let you know, is that like, what, what did you not see was going on with your behavior before you were committed? So the, the thinking about suicide is obviously a big one. You know, most people aren't legitimately doing a pro and con list for life or death. Right. And, and by thinking about suicide, I mean, like, I would say, you know, I I think I'm going to end my life and this will just be such a relief to my mother. And this is, and I, I thought about it just, just exactly how I just said it right there. You know, I think my mom would be thrilled if her son died. Yeah. I think she'd like that. And that's obviously just just bizarre thinking. Uh, but putting that aside, bipolar disorder is a spectrum illness, right? It, it, it's the highs and lows that, that most people are familiar with. The, the, the highs are like godlike mania, consequence-free environment, do whatever you want, tomorrow doesn't matter, uh, it, it, you are the center of the universe. And then, of course, suicidal depression is where you're garbage and your mom will be thrilled if you're dead. And then everything in between, it, it does kind of vacillate uh, along that spectrum. When I was manic, I, I would spend all my money I, and then I couldn't make rent. I, I quit jobs and, and tell people off. And, and I mean, just all kinds of, uh, uh, pardon the pun, crazy behavior and depression equally damaging because I wouldn't quit the job. I just wouldn't go. Uh, and all of these things, they, they, they make life really, really difficult, especially if you're around people who don't understand what's going on. And of course, how could they? I didn't even know what was going on because as far as they're concerned, I'm just lazy or I'm just an asshole or I'm unreliable, or I lied to them, or I broke a promise. So I lost all my friends, my family was mad at me. There was just, and, and I could just go on and on and well, on. But I mean, how would, um, how would you respond if you were in that mode, and someone confronted you and they said, Gabe, what the hell's wrong with you? Blah, blah, blah. What's your problem? Like, how would you have responded historically? So if I was manic, I would have been like, what the hell's wrong with them? Ah, you have no right to challenge me. I am the great Gabe. I probably wouldn't use those, you know, like I wouldn't have used that inflection or actual words, but what would go through my mind is who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to challenge me? I had my reasons. You don't have any right. You don't know my life. I think of every God awful meme that you've ever seen on the internet that people use to justify bad behavior that would all go through my thought process. And I would think I'm better off without you. I don't need you. And, and it, of course, when I would be normal, you know, when I'd be like the center of that spectrum, I'd be like, oh, man, I, I really miss my friend. Uh, now let's go to depression. I, I probably wouldn't have had any conversation whatsoever because they would have tried to call me banged on the door and I wouldn't have answered it. And once again, I'm inside just clinging to life. And as far as they're concerned, I don't even have the time for them. So there, there wasn't 
there just wasn't a lot of breaking through. It really didn't matter what people said or did to me. The illness made it very difficult to face and process. And the the key to understanding what's going on is this ability to process it, right? And since that was the part of my brain that was highly compromised, I just couldn't process it at all. So I was mostly just confused. When you were manic, you said, you know, you would come to the defense of yourself immediately and, you know, pretty strongly. What happens when you were the other side of it? You know, I guess when you were down and someone said to you the same thing, Gabe, what the hell's your problem? You know, how would you have responded then? If they could get through to me, right? I mean, and by get through, I mean, like, actually have this conversation with me. I just burst into tears. I, I, I'd start crying. I, I'd feel awful. I mostly avoided all of these people so they could never actually have this conversation with me. But, you know, you can't avoid everybody, right? Your mom's got a way of getting getting in. And I, I would just start crying. I, I couldn't, I, I knew that I hurt somebody that I loved. I wouldn't have any understanding as to why. Uh, and then I'd fake it. That's the thing that I, I probably want people to take away the most. My mom would say, you did something wrong. I would have no understanding of what I did wrong, but I could recognize that my mother was upset. I, I didn't have the energy or the ability to process it. So I would just start crying and then I would just, you know, I would just lie. And, and maybe lie is too strong of a word here, but I would just, I would just start apologizing. Mom, I'm so sorry. I love you so much. I can't believe I did that. And all of those things are true. I, I was sorry. I, I, I can't believe I did that, but there was no understanding and that, that's, the, that's the part that I want people to understand. In, in, in these moments, people would tell me that I did something. And if I could remember it at all, uh, I probably remembered it differently. I, I didn't understand what they were. There, there was no meeting of the minds. That's really yeah, the that's, best way to state it. That's really interesting. Um, I've spoken to a number of you know, folks that are depressed and people in my family are too. When they're super depressed... I've heard people say like they can't remember and their memory is affected, but when they're, you know, at a medium level, they do seem to remember and understand that they're depressed and it's affecting other people. But manic bipolar seems to be different where like you're saying you literally didn't remember what you did or didn't understand. Like when you look back, does it make sense that you couldn't understand or like, how do you see it now versus when you were in it? Before we continue. I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So just to clarify a quick point, if you're at like medium depression, you you, you can. You you do remember it. You have more insight into what's going on. But generally, the damage isn't as bad because instead of just not showing up, I would cancel, right? So the, the stakes were 
lower for lack of a better word. The thing that they would be mad about is, well, Gabe canceled an hour before the party. But because I was at median depression, I was able to fire off that text or, you know, pick up the phone and leave that voicemail, right? Whereas super depressed, I, I just... I, I just didn't show up and I didn't answer the phone when they call that kind of thing. So it's, it's not black and white to your point. Uh, As far as the, the other bit of information, of of course, it's, it's not unusual not to remember these things. And it's certainly not unusual to remember them differently than they happened. Uh, First off, as I'm fond of saying, you, you can line up 10 perfectly mentally healthy people, all have them watch the exact same thing, and all 10 of them will experience it differently. And, and that's, that's in the best of circumstances, the best mental health, the best everything. So you start compromising your brain. It's not unusual that either you're A, not going to remember because you just weren't in, in the space to remember. You were, you were focusing on something else, probably something like you know, clinging to life, hanging on, managing, just, you got a lot going on when you're sick. Or uh, once again, you know, think of the 10 mentally healthy people that experience things differently. Well, I'm, I was not mentally healthy in those moments. So I experienced it really differently. Uh, Perhaps the reason I didn't show up is because I perceived my mother saying, Hey, can you bring a bag of chips uh, to your uh, part or to the party? Uh, as as my mom's saying, well, you never contribute. You're so worthless. The only thing you're good for is this bag of chips, you freeloader. And uh, that's not oh, what you, she you meant would, at all, but my brain is compromised. Yeah, you would literally interpret a remark that differently? A hundred percent of the time. A hundred percent of the time. Listen, we, we live in a society where I think everybody and I, I don't like I don't like to have black and white thinking, but I think everybody uh, interprets not respond uh, when somebody doesn't respond to your text as anger, right? I, I I think that we have all decided that if I text somebody and three hours later I see them on Facebook but they didn't answer my text message, they must be uh, mad. Uh, yes. So yes, yep. and that's just that's just normal, right? That's just that's just people who are you know walking around again, mentally healthy. So it's not a far stretch to be able to just really move mountains to come up with a reason to hate yourself. Because that's what this is all based on, right? I mean, that's that's what depression and anxiety it does. It, it twists your thoughts, it, it twists the viewpoint, and it, it's abusive. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Um, how did, yeah. It, did it manifest to you as voices? Like what you just described. So someone asked you something simple like, hey, can you bring a bag of chips? And you think all these different things, but literally, how did you experience it? Did you hear it talking to yourself or like, how, what are the different ways you heard that or seen that people experience uh, this kind of mad expression? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So in, in, uh, I had delusions. So it's, it's not voices. It's, it's the feeling of, and, and my delusions were demons. There were demons following me around. They were hiding under the bed. They were hiding in trees. They were following me to work. They, they weren't talking to me like words. It, it, it was more like uh, how we communicate with our pets, right? I, I don't know if you're an animal person, but you know, yes. we can all tell. Yeah, good, good, good. We can all tell when our, our, our pets are mad at us, right? Just in their behavior. They're not using 
using words, but we can tell. Now, again, we have visual cues. We can look at our pets, and, and even though they, they, they can't talk to us in, in English or, uh, or our chosen language, they, 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 they can bark or whine or meow or tweet or, you know, whatever it takes there. But, the, but just, just sometimes you know, right? You just have that gut feeling, uh-oh, you know, I, I should probably spend some time with my pet because they're feeling neglected. And you're not sure why you know this, but ask any animal lover, any pet owner, and they're like, I know it. I don't, well, how do you know? I, I don't know. I just know. I just, Peppy is mad at me. It, it's kind of like that, except I, I've never seen the demon because they're always hiding under the bed or hiding in the trees, but it feels, it feels so real. Uh, and you start making decisions based on that feeling. Wait, so you literally thought that demons were trying to influence you or like, what, what were your thoughts about them? I thought the demons were trying to kill me. Uh, and I thought the demons were trying to, to hurt my loved ones. Uh, and if they weren't trying to kill me, I thought that they were messing with me, you know, trying to get me fired from my job, trying to get the people that I loved to, to leave. Uh, I, I thought that they were influencing, trying not only to influence me, but also the people around me. Uh, so I, you know, I had a girlfriend at the time and, and she stayed at my apartment when I went to work. And when I came home from work, uh, she had to go. Now, listen, this, this was years and years ago. And she just, she just literally had to go. You know, she had, she, you know, we had dinner and she's like, Hey, I don't want to spend the night tonight. I've got to go. Uh, I spent that entire night crying because the demons had convinced her to leave me. She didn't leave me. Just, I mean, that none of that happened, but she, she had spent the day at my apartment. So therefore the demons were able to convince her that I was garbage and that she should leave. And uh, when dinner was over and she was like, Hey, I need to go back to my apartment. I got to feed my cats. I'm going to sleep at home tonight. I was like, Nope, that's the end of it. She's breaking up with me. Demons convinced her based literally on nothing. So how have you seen that other people experience uh, these kind of interactions? You know, you gave your way which is probably very common, but what are some other ways you've learned? People experience this in, in all kinds of different ways. I, I, I would say that there's probably as many ways to experience this as there are people. There's obviously some common threads, right? I, you know, when we talk about being nervous, everybody experiences being nervous differently, but for some reason, we all agree that there's butterflies in the stomach, right? I mean, everybody who gets, uh, you know, anxious or nervous about something's like, oh, you got the butterflies? Yeah, I do. But the experiences differ from there. One of the things in, in you know, in, in, in bipolar disorder is this whiplash effect of emotion. One minute you're king of the world and the next minute you're garbage and the next minute you're perfectly centered. One minute you have control of your thoughts. One minute you don't. Uh, one minute you can remember everything that's ever happened to you. And the next minute you can't remember a minute ago. And, and we all sort of have that in common. What really differs is how we adjust to it and how often it happens to us. Uh, for example, we, we talk about mood swings, you know, going from the highs to the lows. Uh, some people that happens very gradually over a couple of days. Some people have rapid cycling where they'll literally experience multiple mood swings in the same day or even hour. Uh, I, I have mostly rapid cycling where I would go from highs to lows relatively quickly. Now, that's not always in the same hour, but generally my moods didn't last more than a day. Uh, with, with Now, there's, again, there's, I want to be very clear, that's not always the case, but 
the way that I reacted to it because it happened so quickly was just like this whiplash effect. I just, I just said and did whatever it took to get me to the next moment because it was going to change somebody who experiences uh, mood swings that are much slower. You know, may, maybe they're, they're happy for a couple of weeks. Uh, they're able to make better decisions because of course they have control of their faculties for uh, multiple days versus somebody who only has control of their faculties for multiple hours. So you said you ended up being committed. What were you thinking? And like, who committed you, first of all? And what were you thinking when that first happened? Were you bewildered? And what happened? Yeah, so the the, the woman that I was casually dating who, who didn't want to spend the night at my apartment because the demons convinced her not to. Again, that's obviously not what happened, but that's what I, that's what I thought. She, she started to pick up on, on some things. She started to realize that, you know, something, something was... Uh, was up with this guy. And the thing that she started to pick up on was that I, I, I was experiencing, or I was, I was showing, you know, suicidal ideation. She, she was afraid that, that I was planning a suicide, which, which she was right. Uh, and she knew what to do, which, which was very fortunate to me. And she walked up to me and she said, Hey, are you planning on killing yourself? And I, I had no reason to lie. I thought this was normal. I thought this was, yeah, I said, yes. And uh, she took me to the emergency room. Uh, that, that, that's, you know, long story short, she figured out something was wrong, acted on it because she knew how to act on it and, and got me the help that I needed. Once I was at the emergency room and they evaluated me, yeah, it was all over from there. I was, I was committed that night and I, you know, I got a diagnosis and I, I started to get help and I started to get care and that, that really I mean, that, that was the beginning of wellness for me. And, and even from that day to the time I reached recovery, it took four years. It, it took a very long time uh, from the time that I finally figured out something was wrong until I was able to get everything under control. So if I knew someone that was, you know, bipolar and I asked, I said, this person, can you talk to them for me? Do you think you could get through to them because you understand maybe what's going on with them more than I would? So that that's always one of those difficult questions, right? I, I I'm a really big believer in peer support, and we we see peer support play itself out in 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 so many ways in our society. From the the best example, which is Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, uh, where you know peers literally support each other. You know, other people with uh, alcohol and addiction issues come together to support other people. Uh, but we also see it play out in you know sales conferences, right? bunch of salespeople get together and they all support each other, exchange ideas. You know, we see it in real estate. We see it. And I, I mean, that's what a conference is, right? It's a bunch of like-minded people getting together to support each other and share ideas. So the first easy answer is in some ways, yes. I, I think that I definitely would be able to maybe spot trends faster than somebody who has never uh, lived with bipolar disorder or any mental illness. But I also want to point out that in some ways, no, because I'm just a stranger, right? I walk up and say, hey, I think maybe you have X. And even though you've never met me before, you should take major medical action on my behalf. That that sounds uh, sketchy, right? I guess it's a difference between gaslighting unintentionally and actually helping I mean, it's, it's, I definitely recommend like that, that two pronged approach, right? There's, if you suspect something is wrong with your friend, and you've tried talking to them, and you haven't gotten anywhere, it's definitely reasonable to seek help outside 
and, and I think that many people don't. They're like, well, I tried talking to him and they got mad. So I gave up. Uh, and and that's, that's understandable. I understand. I get it. I've gotten in fights with people. I, I'm not pretending that I've never given up on somebody because I just don't want to deal with their BS. But one of the symptoms of bipolar disorder, of, of course, is this you know, anger and aggression and paranoia and, uh, you know, throwing up all of these barriers and walls and saying, don't you challenge me, get away from me. I mean, we're in, in some ways very weak when we're symptomatic in that we just can't tolerate any sort of criticism or pushback or uh, it's very, very thin skinned. So the symptom is the thing that makes people not want to help us. And the reason we need help is because of that symptom. So that's where it's definitely beneficial to, you know, call in somebody else who can help you, whether it's a, a therapist, a doctor, a peer supporter, and there's all kinds of ideas. But I, I definitely think it's a partnership between the people who love the person, the, the, the person who has been engaged to sort of bridge the gap, and of course, the person who needs help. We, we often leave out that third person. We're like, okay, well, we're going to save them. Okay, well, we got to involve them. No, 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 no. It's us against them. No, it's it's not us against them. It's all of us working together to figure out what we can do to help that person. And uh, it, it's it's there's no quick or easy answer. Have you um, gone through a lot of medical literature on um, bipolar disorder? And has anyone found any physiological underpinnings of why this happens? I've been through tons and tons of, of reading and, and I've sat through so many speeches, conferences. Of course, I've, I've interviewed some of the top doctors uh, in America, not just about bipolar disorder, but about all kinds of illnesses. And I've learned a lot. And one of the things that I've learned is how little we know about the brain. And on, on one hand, we know a lot right? We, we have a lot of data and there's a lot of you know, good support and good information out there. I don't want anybody to hear, oh, doctors don't know anything. There's no reason to seek help. But we have a long way to go. It's, you know, it's almost the final frontier because it's this organ that we all have. It, it, it's so vital to our lives and to our personalities and to everything that we do on a daily basis. And it's so incredibly not understood. That's encouraging and discouraging. It's encouraging because the more we learn, the more we can help people. It's discouraging because how on earth have humans been on this planet for so long and we know so little? But to answer your question straight up, no, there's just really not this physiological marker or this, you know, when this, this happens. It's it's such a nebulous concept at the moment. Yeah, so how do you, because the person experiencing this may not even remember or know what's going on or have any understanding that they're actually acting in a certain way, how do you live with someone like this? How do you interact with someone like this to have a relationship? Like, what are some suggestions you have if a listener knows someone that appears to have this problem? What should they do? So first and foremost, it, it, it's extraordinarily difficult for our, all parties. That That's like hard stop, right? It, it's The illness is cruel. Uh, one of the reasons that I named my book Mental Illness is an Asshole is because it it, it's, it is. It's just an asshole. It's so mean and cruel. Not only does it make you hate yourself, it makes all the people that you love hate you too. 
and and it just builds on itself and it you're the more you try to fix it oftentimes the worse it becomes because it just leads you into these little traps and 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 you think you're doing well but then in retrospect you're like oh no that was not a good idea and and then you try to fix that and before you know it everything is just messed up there's it it's so so terrible i i I just want to make sure that that your listeners understand how many barriers and roadblocks there are for people suffering from this to get help. As far as what a loved one should do, a friend, a caregiver, family, uh, whatever name you want to put on the person, one of the things that they need to do is help themselves. Uh, first and foremost, they have to take care of their own mental health. You can't pour from an empty cup. If, if you're not taking care of yourself, you are in no position to take care of somebody else. So make sure to keep yourself grounded so that you can make the right decisions for yourself and for the person that you care about. Uh, and this will help you in step two. In step two, when somebody is symptomatic, when somebody is uh, insane, crazy, nuts, out of their mind, whatever words you want to use, and I, I'm very fond of, of saying it like it is, you got to remember, if you get in a screaming fight with them, you've decided that they're compromised and you're not. So the reason that they're doing it is because they're sick. Why are you doing it? So it, it's super important to understand that when you're trying to help somebody who has a, a, a mental illness, they're not in their right mind. So it's it's super, super important that you take a deep breath and practice de-escalation skills and know when to take a time out and not take the things that they say personally, because you have... You have determined that something's wrong. And then finally, you want to get that person to help. I believe very strongly in the partnership approach where you say, you know, I'm really worried about you. And that person says, oh, you don't need to be. There's nothing wrong. I, I understand. But would you agree to go to a doctor to calm my nerves? You know, not not for you. I just I, I can't take I I am so worried let's just go see a therapist together or let's go see our general practitioner together because it would just, it would just make me feel so much better. It's not about you. It's about me. I'm a big believer in that because oftentimes if you set it up as a partnership, if you set it up as I would like you to do this because it would make me feel better, it would help me. Uh, that's a very vulnerable position and generally people respond to it. And then once you get to that third party, that expert, that expert can use their skills to help you get to step you know, two, three, four, and five. Uh, finally, and I, I want to say this because it's so important. So many people think that they can't help their loved one with mental illness unless they know exactly what's going on. You know, they need to be able to say, oh, I believe that he has bipolar disorder with psychotic features and maybe some anxiety. So now I'm going to call it that. You, you don't need to know anything. In fact, it's better if you don't know anything. We, we don't have this in physical health. Could, could you imagine if nobody would take somebody to the doctor unless they knew what was wrong? It's like, oh, Richard looks sick. What's wrong with him? I don't know. But until I can figure it out, we're just going to leave him in bed. No, I'll, they just call up the doctor and say, hey, my friend is sick. What's wrong with him? Well, he can't get out of bed. And, and then that, that's it. That's enough. That's that, that suspicion is all you need. So often we wait until there's a crisis or until it gets really, really bad before we do any sort of intervention. And that's, that makes it so much more difficult than if you caught it, you know, uh, more towards the beginning or before the person gets really, really sick.
Right. Well, how have you observed? How have you observed that people react to being told that they're, you know, manic, bipolar, or they have this problem or that problem? I know it ranges and it depends, but what are some of the common responses you've seen? The two common responses seem to be, uh, and again, I've done no study on this, but the two common responses seem to be, that's bullshit. That's, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I've always been this way. You're a liar. You're a quack. You're pushing pills on me. Big pharma. Uh, the psychiatry is quackery. The, the, you're just trying to control me. Uh, just complete denial. A hundred percent lockdown conspiracy theory denial. The the second most common seems to be this sort of, uh, okay, I definitely think that something's wrong and you definitely seem to be taking it seriously, but I'm scared and confused. I'm not saying that I don't believe you. I'm not saying that I do believe you. I'm saying that you might be onto something and I'm terrified, but I want you to be wrong, but I definitely am interested in more information but I don't know. In rare cases, people accept it right out of the gate. I was one of the rare cases. They're like, you have bipolar disorder. I was like, what's that? They're like, this is bipolar disorder. I'm like, yeah, that fits. That just, the, the minute I read the little pamphlet, I've been like, yeah, this is, you, this, this describe. wow. I, I wish somebody would have given me this pamphlet five years ago. Uh, mm. It was just so perfect. But, you know, there's a lot of denial in all medical diagnoses. You know, if you talk to any, any oncologist who delivers, you know, cancer news, the very first thing is, are you sure? Run the test again. I, there's the seven stages of grief are very clear that everybody denies traumatic things and bipolar disorder is a traumatic thing. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I don't know. Like now that you've understood it, you've podcasted about it, you've interviewed people, you've learned a lot. Where is the help going to come from? Like what What do you think needs to be done to help people that are suffering from this? I I really, really wish that there were vastly more resources available. One of the biggest problems that we have right now in America is that we treat this in crisis. We we really want to wait until something really bad happens. And that is just, that is just terrible policy. I, I mean, just, could you imagine raising children this way? that the only way that you will take sharp things away from children is if they cut themselves first, that, that there's no preventative care whatsoever of, of looking in the room and thinking, oh, I don't want my three-year-old to pick that up or, you know, oh, that they, they could pull that uh, shelf off the wall. So I'm going to use that little strap to anchor it to be safe. Nope, nope. We're not going to do anything until something really, really bad happens. Parents don't behave this way. Good parents don't behave this way. We as a society don't behave this way. For whatever reason, when it comes to mental illness, we, we really wait until something really bad happens before we intervene. And, and one of the things that needs to change is that we need to intervene sooner. We need to know how to intervene sooner. And there needs to be resources available for the person who needs intervene. I mean, just you know, 16 to 24 is the average age of onset of, of serious and persistent mental illness. Your average 16 to 24-year-old doesn't have, you know, money in the bank. They don't have good health insurance. They don't have careers. They're, they're starting out their lives. They're struggling. They're, they're in debt, right? They just, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're still paying off the couch. I, I mean, it's, it, the, and then somebody says, hey, you might have this medical problem. It's going to cost a couple of thousand dollars. They're like, you know what? No. I, I can't afford that. And mm. then I, I am so sad that people are deciding between having a place to sit their butt when they get home from work 
or medical care. I, I, I want to live in a world where you can have both. And, and frankly, I want to live in a world where you can also have a TV, a pizza, uh, a, a nice car. Like I, I just medical care should not be a luxury item. And medical care is a luxury item. And even in medical care being a luxury item, mental health care is like, that, that's like a Mercedes luxury item. It, it's, that has to change. It has to change rapidly. So what, um, I don't know, there's, it seems like there's a whole spectrum of, you know, mental issues, I guess, ranging from like, you know, sudden depression, if you got laid off from your job, or you were, you know, told you have cancer to, you know, chronic depression to bipolar, to PTSD, etc. This whole landscape of, of mental conditions. What, um, I don't know, is there a, any advice for parents or friends or just people that know, these, you know, if they know someone and they suspect that they're having these issues, what would you tell them to do? How do they respond in a compassionate way? One of the things that we have to understand is that everybody has mental health and therefore everybody can have mental health problems. Most people are mentally healthy most of the time, right? But, but all of us can experience a mental health issue. The most common mental health issue that people will experience is grief. You know, somebody that you love passes away. It is unreasonable to think that that person is going to be in their best headspace, their their best emotional state, their best mental health state the day after their loved one passes away. And I think most people understand that. Now, mental illness, that that's a whole, you know, th- those are your chronic conditions, right? So, you know, mental health would be equivalent to like, you know, catching a cold or getting the flu, right? And, and mental illness would be equivalent to, you know, diabetes or cancer, uh, to, to put it in a little perspective there. One of the things that I think we need to do as a society is understand the differences. We need to start having open conversations. We need to normalize people saying they don't feel emotionally well that they they feel stressed, overwhelmed, or that they feel even worse than that. We we need to learn the signs and symptoms. We need to have conversations about it. We need to start these conversations before a crisis happens. And we need to be able to forgive people who have issues relating to mental illness. Now, I want to say very clearly, we, we need to be able to forgive the people that do you know, uh, do things that they wish they wouldn't do or that we wish they wouldn't do when they were symptomatic. But equally, the person who does it needs to make amends. I'm very fond of saying just because it's not your fault doesn't mean that it's not your responsibility. I did a Mm -hmm. lot of things because of bipolar disorder that were 100% related to my illness, 100%. But it's still my problem. I had to make amends. I had to pay for it. I had to fix it. I had to apologize because as much as it's not my fault, it's not the person who I harmed or hurt or offended. It's not their fault either. So both sides have to do their part. The the person who is sick has to realize that something happened and make amends for it. And the person that they are making amends with needs to say, I understand you, you were sick and that's why this happened. And, and that twofold is a compassionate way for, for everybody to move forward. And listen, we're, we're not there on, on either side. There are so many people with bipolar disorder uh, and, and other mental health issues that are just like, well, I don't have to apologize. I was sick. That's not an empowering statement. And that's not taking control of your life or your illness. And it's certainly not honoring what the other person went through. I find it very empowering to apologize. 
I'm not saying that it's not hard, awkward, awful, or I, I mean, it, it, it's terrible. It's, but, you know, after I got through it and I started repairing these relationships, I thought, Hey, bipolar disorder tried to take my mom from me and now we've worked it out. So that's Gabe one bipolar zero. Those are empowering moments. Yeah, no, it makes sense. We're just about at the end of time. I would bet you have a lot of great references. So one of them I would think is your podcast. I want to encourage listeners, but who would, who would your podcast help? Who should listen to it? The thing that I love about my podcast is it's designed to take complicated, difficult concepts and, and, and move them down to layman's level, right? Like that's the goal. It's to get experts and, and celebrities and notables and people with so many letters behind their name, it takes me an hour and a half to introduce them and get them to share with us what's going on and what information that we need to know. Because listen, mental illness and mental health is complicated and it becomes even more complicated when we don't have the ability to understand it. So the the topics are wide ranging from what is bipolar disorder to postpartum depression to my son has a, a mental health challenge to you know, rebuilding after the suicide of a loved one. Uh, If it is mental health related, that topic is probably in there. And what I love about it is when you get done listening, you will have foundational knowledge. You will not be an expert. Nobody should listen to a 25 minute podcast and declare themselves an expert on anything, but you will know significantly more when you are done than when you started. And you can use that information to ask questions, to, to evaluate more information and to learn more and, and to help yourself. Uh, so I really think it's for everybody. Uh, but if you are an expert on the subject, that episode is probably not for you. <laughs> okay, last question. So what's one resource for someone that interacts with someone that, that uh, they suspect may have uh, you know manic or bipolar or severe depression? Is it a book? Is it a a website is it a podcast like what's one resource and then what's one for someone that's suffering that has a suspicion that something's going on but they're not sure so sincerely if i've got to give one resource that resource is going to be a therapist so many people don't think that they need a therapist because it's their loved one like no 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 no, no, no. i don't need a therapist they do Look, if you want one resource, chances are what your loved one is going through is causing you discomfort and trauma and anger. And it, it, it's, it's messing with your, your life. And you are rightfully angry and annoyed by that. And if you don't address that, you are not in a position to help the person that you care about. And by addressing it, you can then also get hints and tips like, hey, I, I, I walked up to my loved one and I said, you need help. And he screamed at me. And a therapist will be like, all right, let's brainstorm some ways that we can try that again and, and see how that works. Like, for example, I, I gave the example of saying, I would like you to do this for me. Therapists, they, they, they will be able to help you in ways that... I can't even explain over a podcast. Uh, If you need something free, uh, which is certainly understandable, I do think that Inside Mental Health is is a great resource. It's absolutely free. And it's so many topics that there's definitely an episode out there pretty much for everybody in the last five years. The, The real answer, though, 
for, for, for both sides is you need more than one resource. I mean, imagine if you opened up a home remodeling company and somebody's like, okay, you get one tool. You'd be like, well, I'm, my, my company's going to fail if I can only have one tool. You need multiple tools. You, you need information like from a podcast or, or a trusted website. You need a therapist. You need friends and family. You need a book. You need to talk to each other. You need a support group. You need to keep an open mind. You need to admit when you're wrong. Uh, and, and you need to learn how to be better because that's what's going to make us all better. Uh, but if you can only have the one therapist, but if you can have like one and a half therapist in the podcast. Very good. Well, Gabe, thank you for coming and explaining. And I mean, it's going to take time for me to get my head around this and listeners too, but I think it's really helpful and useful what you covered. So thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Hey, hey, I really, really appreciate it. You can also grab more resources over at GabeHoward.com. Uh, the podcast mm-hmm. link is there, social media links. And of course, that's where you can grab mental illness as an asshole. I'll even sign up. It's a great book. Well, good. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.